Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The Derek Chauvin trial is back on and uh, the defense is presenting their case now. It seems like what they're going to try and do is just play one video after another uh, from body cam footage of police officers interacting with arresting whatever George Floyd in the past. This is the old portray the guy as the evil guy strategy. So, you know, I... We will be checking in with Debbie Hines about the Chauvin trial on that. Also in this hour, I want to get into this question of how could a 26-year veteran of the police mistake a gun for a taser? Well, we'll get to that. There's a lot going on in the news. The trial of Officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd is continuing. A cardiologist has testified basically that, you know, yeah, George Floyd had some you know, some, some early signs of heart disease, but that had nothing to do with why he died. He died because Derek Chauvin cut off his air supply for nine minutes plus, becoming more and more obvious. And now we have also an incredible situation in Minneapolis. Dante Wright was pulled over for a traffic violation in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And in the process of getting arrested, he got out of his car and then he got back in his car when they figured out he had a warrant apparently. He got back in his car and was going to drive away. They shot him. He drove a short distance and his car crashed and he died. Now there are reasonably, appropriately, protests going on, some of which have been have involved vandalism. But if they had just let him go or followed him once they determined that there was a warrant, uh, they could have arrested him uh, you know, under dozens of other circumstances. But, oh, no, he's running away. we got to shoot him. Right. Like, like what? He's, he's like Dillinger? I mean, really? And this black army lieutenant in Virginia, not in in, uh, Minnesota, but Army Lieutenant Karan Nazario. And this was last December. It's just coming to light now because he's sued. And so the body cam footage had to come out as part of the lawsuit. And we're seeing this, you know, this guy just had bought an SUV. He was a a lieutenant in the Army, which is a high rank. I mean, you've got to be a college graduate to, to qualify for that. And He's pulled over because he's driving a brand new car with the temporary tag taped inside the window, which we've all done. You know, if you've bought a new car, I mean, you've, you've, I shouldn't say we've all done, but anybody who's bought a new car has done. And it's like, really? You're going to pull him over for this? And then you're going to pepper spray him in his car? And then you're going to drag him out and throw him down on the ground and handcuff him and humiliate him and continue to essentially torture this guy? I mean, it's just... Windsor police officer Daniel Crocker radioed in that he was pulling him over because of the lack of a tag. This is just, you know, it's ongoing. And to that point, my essentially rant for the day, which you can find over at HartmanReport.com if you want to see it directly, is is titled Oligarchs Con White Boys. And I spelled it B-O-I-S. And what I'm saying is that these Republicans and white nationalists are playing with fire in their efforts to end democracy. And I think, frankly, what I just described in these two police incidents and the murder of George Floyd and so many others is like all the same stuff. It's no coincidence that Donald Trump and his supporters have this incredible affection for the Confederate flag, right? I mean, somehow they think that their whiteness will protect them from the consequences of ending democracy in America. And they are wrong. These people do not know the history of the Confederacy. By 1860, 
And you could argue that throughout its history, the Confederacy was this, but it really got rigid in the 1820s. By 1860, it was an ethno-nationalist police state. It was run by a small group of families who were all plantation owners, Robert E. Lee's family being one of them. His plantation was taken away from him after the war and turned into Arlington National Cemetery. This kind of iron-fisted oligarchy is exactly what Trump and, and his boys basically want to impose on all of America. I've talked before about the slave patrols in the South, you know, that the state militias were actually slave patrols, and that became essentially modern-day policing. And, of course, if you uh, look at the modern white militia movement, these guys think that they're the slave patrols. And, of course, the cops who threatened this lieutenant in the Army, who just killed this young man in Minneapolis, and the cops who killed George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice. And, you know, the list just goes on and on. But the Southern oligarchy wasn't just about slavery and racism. They practiced this absolute economic and political domination, a brutal domination everywhere they had power, including against poor whites in the Confederate states. And again, you know, these white guys who are running around with Confederate flags don't know what the hell they're promoting. Poor white people, landless white people in the South could not vote. Or if they did vote, or if, you know, small white farmers, if they did vote, you know, the ballots boxes were stuffed or the ballots were burned. I mean, I lay all this out in my new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. It started really with the cotton gin in 1820 because, you know, if, if you had a big plantation and you could afford to buy a cotton gin, one cotton gin could do the work of 50 hard scrabble white farmers or 50 enslaved Africans. And as a result of that, these giant plantations became massive plantations. They ran all the, the small white farmers out of business, turned them into sharecroppers, into tenant farmers, and you know, bought up their farms and whatnot. And when poor whites tried to fight back, I mean, this is a quote from Carrie Lee Merritt's book, uh, Masterless Men, Poor Whites and Slavery in the Antebellum South. Carrie Lee writes, Poor whites made particularly inviting targets for a southern legal system dominated by slaveholders. On the eve of secession, slaveholders were still jailing poor whites for small amounts of debt, publicly whipping white thieves and auctioning off debtors and criminals for their labor to the highest bidder. These were white people. In addition to the region's sophisticated legal system, Old South also had an extremely effective extra-legal system to keep lower-class whites in their places. From vigilance committees to Minuteman groups, these organizations helped maintain both slavery and the Southern social hierarchy and ultimately forced a divided region to wage an unwanted war. Matthew McConaughey, four years ago, made a movie about this, about a guy named Newton Knight, a white guy who challenged the oligarchs, the plantation owners. They lynched 10 of his white guy's buddies. But we still have these white guys running around going, oh yeah, we want the Old South. Man, they have no friggin' idea what they're talking about. Do you really want to turn America into a police state? Newton Knight, this movie that Matthew McConaughey made, with K-N-I-G-H-T, is a poor Southern white man who led this resistance movement against the Southern oligarchs. A substantial movement, by the way. There was a lot of, not only was there black resistance in the South, and of course they were brutally punished when enslaved Africans fought back. I mean, torture and then, you know, perpetual enslavement and tearing families apart and just god-awful stuff. When white people fought back, they were not treated quite as badly, but they, you know, the 10 of uh, Newton Knight's compatriots of his fellow white guys who were trying to stop the oligarchy in the South and trying to bring about democracy in the South were lynched by these plantation owners. Knight ended up finally making it to the North with his little merry band, and, and he accompanied Sherman through his march across Georgia in 1864. Tell this to these white guys who were running around with the Confederate flag. Over 100,000 poor whites fled the South for the North. That's what was going on. And by the time of the Civil War, the southern part of America was no longer a democratic republic. It just wasn't. It was a pure police state oligarchy run by a couple thousand families. And nobody of any race who wasn't related to one of these oligarch families was actually free. And this is the nation that Donald Trump and his oligarch buddies are trying to recreate. 
It's what the oligarch-owned Fox News is pushing us towards. You know, Tom Cotton, he tweeted recently, he said, we have a major under-incarceration problem in America. Right. We have 4% of the world's population and 25% of all the people in prison in the entire world are in prison here in the United States. So here's the sales pitch, right? We're going to eliminate the voting power, eliminate the economic power, eliminate the political power of black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, you know, right across the board. Put more people in prison, especially minorities. This is what basically is being laid out on Fox News every day. Recruit poor whites to the cause by giving them people of color to sneer at and demonize. Toss them a bone of a White Lives Matter rally. They had, they had a bunch of them around the country over the weekend on Sunday. You know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people showing up. Lyndon Johnson talked about this back in the 60s when he was president. He made this comment about the Republicans. It wasn't just the Republicans, by the way. There were conservative Democrats at the time who were also pushing segregation. And what Lyndon Johnson said was, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, you give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. And that's what's going on right now. You've got, you know, making these guys, these white boys are BOIS, are, are t- help, trying to help make sure that billionaire oligarchs like Donald Trump are in charge. And they're the new plantation owners, the aristocrats, the oligarchs. And then you've got Tucker Carlson out there pitching this on Fox News, which shouldn't surprise us. The former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, published an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald that's titled... Rupert Murdoch is the cancer eating the heart of Australian democracy. He says Murdoch isn't just a news organization. Murdoch operates as a political party acting in pursuit of clearly defined commercial interests in addition to his far-right ideological worldview. Murdoch is also a political bully and a thug who for many years has hired bullies as his editors. And Kevin Rudd, the former prime minister of Australia, goes on to talk about how every Australian politician lives in fear of Rupert Murdoch. He owns like so many of the newspapers, so much of the media in Australia, he can take you down. So now here we are. Donald Trump and Tucker and their fellow travelers, they've raised a small army of white people all across this country. And they strut around with their open carry and they freak out about whatever the latest conspiracy theory of the week may be. And they call themselves patriots, just like the Confederate soldiers and slave patrollers did. And they think that putting people of color, quote, back in their place will somehow lift their chances, the white guy's chances, to experience the American dream? Like it's some kind of bizarre zero-sum game? You know, LBJ was right. These white people are suckers, and they're wrong. Destroying our democracy as, you know, oligarch Donald Trump tried to do just a few months ago will not restore the glory of the South. It will flip us into a fascistic oligarchy, which is what the South actually was. And everybody but the oligarchs will suffer. So I guess I'm saying to those white folks with their Confederate flags, wake up, suckers, because they're going to come for you too. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Debbie Hines is on the line with us, analyst for the Chauvin trial, a legal political commentator, former prosecutor, served as the assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland early in her career. IamDebbieHines.com is her uh, both her Twitter handle, and, or IamDebbieHines is both her Twitter handle and .com is her website. Debbie, welcome back. So it looked, from the little I saw of the trial this morning, like they're now going to try and put George Floyd on trial now that the defense has, has taken their turn. Oh, that's what they've been trying to really do all along. I mean, that's really the only thing that the defense has going to in any way try to refute what we all saw in the 9-minute, 29-second video. So today they start with a prior arrest that Mr. Floyd had a year before his death in 2019. And even though the judge instructed the jury that it's only for a limited purpose and it's not for the purpose of to defame Mr. Floyd's character, yeah, well, that was really the reason for it. So they had an officer who arrested <laughs> yeah, him in 2019, and they also had the paramedic that, you know, they came to the scene in 2019, the year before. But, you know, all the witnesses today, including those two, are really more helpful for the for the prosecution than really for the defense because, you know, what happened in 2019, he lived to see another day. He lived to see a whole another year until he met up mm. with Derek Chauvin with his knee on his neck. So anything that they're trying to say that, oh, he had drugs in his system, he had this, he had that, it really doesn't matter because we're not back at 2019. We're at May 25th, 2020. So I just don't think that was really that helpful. And then they had um, Officer Chang, who was actually, I didn't realize there was five of them, it was He was the fifth officer. There was four involved with Mr. Floyd. And he was the fifth officer who just, you know, heard it, came to the scene to see what was happening. And he says he looks around and he's concerned about the crowd that, oh, he's concerned for the officer's safety about the crowd. Well, you know, that's what he says. But at the end of the day, Derek Chauvin and the other officers weren't concerned about their safety because they never called for backup. And that would be the first thing that you do if you are remotely concerned as an officer about your safety concerning a crowd. You don't wait till the crowd becomes uh, unruly. You will call for backup right away. So if there is a problem, you know, better safe than sorry, as my mom used to always say, you at least have people there ready to assist you. So Officer Chang was like, you know, a nothing burger. And then they brought back uh, the Minneapolis um, Medical Support Coordinator, that is her title, to get back on this topic that Mr. Floyd could have died from excited delirium. And excited delirium is caused by drug use. And that can cause you to have a heart attack right away. And okay, that's what she said on direct, but then when on cross-examination, she really helped because she said, well, if a police officer thinks someone has ingested drugs and they could be subject to excited delirium, then what the police officer is supposed to do is put them on their side, the very thing that Derek Chauvin did not do and the very thing that caused Mr. Floyd's death. So I just don't see where these witnesses are you know, going to be much helpful in reality. What the defense should do, and they are going to bring on, I believe, a medical examiner from the state of Maryland, unfortunately, the state that I was born in. But anyway, they're going to bring on a medical examiner, and that's really their best case to talk about causation, but to talk about it from the aspect and point of view of a medical profession, not all these other people who, you know, who come to the scene are going to discuss it, but just dealing straight up with the autopsy report. I don't know if that'll help them or not. Debbie Hines, are we seeing a new day when these kinds of smear the dead guy defenses just don't work anymore? We don't know yet, Tom. It's too soon to tell. I mean, I want to be hopeful and optimistic about this case, but at the end of the day, you know, racism seems to raise its ugly head in America and everything, and more particularly in these types of cases. So I don't really want to go that far because we don't really know who's actually on the jury and we don't really get a lot of commentary either online or in other news sources about what the members of the jury are looking at when they are actually listening to the testimony because there's a lot to be said when you can actually see the jury you as a trial attorney you can read some things into their body language and how they're perceiving testimony which raises an interesting question i know that we can't see the jury on tv but there are people in the courtroom who have been reporting on the jury's demeanor i have not been following those reports of you is there any any feedback that might give us a sense of where this is going to go Yeah, I think what I've heard is, you know, there's been favorable 
feedback, but there's also things to be, you know, for when you can read positive body language, but there's also a lot to be said for people who are stoic. And that I haven't heard because those are the people that you want to be concerned about where you're not eliciting any type of emotion from them from a very emotional trial and testimony. So that's what we look at, not just people shaking their head or the people going like this, but the people who are just sitting there and not responding at all. That's what we want to keep an eye on. Debbie Hines, trial lawyer, former assistant attorney general for Michigan, former prosecutor, political commentator. I am Debbie Hines on Twitter and dot com. Debbie, thanks again so much for dropping by and sharing your expertise with us. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind? Well, Derek Chauvin's murder trial is on my mind, Tom, as well as what took place in that area last night with the killing of Mr. Wright. And I, I wanted to say to you and your audience that I'm very distressed because there has already been judicial misconduct in this case. This case, if I'm the defense attorney in this case, I've already written the appeal. And I'll point to a couple of things and try to keep it pithy. The judge refused to sequester the jury in this case, which was a tactical error, if not a strategic one. There's already been jury misconduct in terms of jurors discussing the case with people outside of the courtroom. The murder of Mr. Wright last night already, uh, if I'm the defense attorney, I'm going to argue that it is impassioned and biased the jury because they heard about it. And there's uh, the $47 million civil settlement is going to factor into this on the periphery. Now, there are two other things that are kind of taboo that I wanted to talk about because it's very strange to me how the prosecution has failed to mention the fact that George Floyd and Derek Chauvin knew each other. Now, this is going to be taboo, but there's lots of taboos when it comes to quote-unquote race in this country. I hearken back to Emmett Teal who supposedly wolf-whistled at a white woman. There's something in this, and this, along with what I had mentioned to you before, about how it's weird to me. I always listen to the silence, Tom, because it's normally louder than anything said. And it's really weird how the prosecution, as I mentioned, hasn't brought up the fact that these two knew each other. But there's a there's This is in the Chauvin trial. Yeah. Yeah, in the Chauvin trial. There's another element that isn't talked about, and that is George Floyd had a white girlfriend. And that white girlfriend had some connections from what I have been able to glean. I can't verify this, but some connection to that club and apparently knew Chauvin as well. I don't know this to be a fact, but I do because know now, that. Now, Chauvin and, and Floyd were both security guards at that club. Was right. that at the same time? Because, I mean, if Floyd's girlfriend dropped by to visit him, then Chauvin would know about her. Right. No, no, it was at the same time for a time. Chauvin was outside yeah. security when he was off duty for about 17 years. Floyd was the bouncer inside. They absolutely mm-hmm. knew each other. So here's the thing, Tom, I'm going to tell you a real quick anecdotal story. My second wife was a beautiful woman who happened to be white. She would have been beautiful no matter she had been chartreuse. And in any event, we are walking out of, uh, we had a lunch one day, an early Friday. We had lunch together. We're walking out to the parking lot. I told her to meet me there. She was in her car. I was in mine. We parked next to each other. As we're walking out, there's this big hulking white guy that walks by, and he looks at her, and he looks at me, and he says, Ma'am, are you okay? And she, after uttering some oaths that I can't repeat over the air, said to him, He's my fill-in-the-blank husband. This, if you really want to see white men go crazy... In this country, and it's been this way for a long time, be a black man involved with a white woman. And I'm willing to bet, Tom, I don't know this. Let me reiterate that there's more to this than what is being presented. Yeah, it's wow. You know, it makes perfect sense, Kenyatta. It also makes sense that unless they could absolutely definitively prove that, that the prosecution probably wouldn't bring that up because it could be attacked by the defense. And that would be a digression from the just this laser focus they have on, you know, he cut off his air for nine minutes. That's all you need. Send him to prison for the rest of his life. I appreciate your insights. Always great to hear from you and and to read your uh, posts over at you're posting on Medium now, right? Yes, as well as uh, opednews.com. So you can find me either place. Um, And we had a, let me just say this real quick, 15 seconds. 
we had uh, in Los Angeles, and, well, the metro L.A. area, Huntington Beach, I'm sure you're familiar with it. We had a White Lives Matter protest yesterday with about, there were several hundred of them, I think five or six hundred. Hmm. And one of them went through the crowd saying that white people in America are the new N-words. Well, oh, let me tell you something. Uh, he got his ass tore up, but it was a real mess. Hmm. So yeah. this is where yeah. we're at. It's unfortunate. Yep, it's definitely yep. where we're at. Kenyatta, thanks. It's great Once to hear from you. Kirk in Bremerton, Washington. Hey, Kirk, what's up? Hey, Tom. That's a laser-focused Hartman report this morning. I really enjoyed reading that. Uh, I wish we didn't have to think of America in that way, but we do. One thought came to mind after reading it in that some of this supremacy can be traced back to immigration, new folks in a country feeling like they have to unfortunately put people below them in order to, you know, raise themselves up. I've read that. Yeah. Uh, that LBJ I, quote. I, yeah, Irish and Italian immigrants were notorious for that in the South, unfortunately, some of them. But I wanted to ask you, where do you think the end game is on this? Where does this lead, unfortunately, 71 million Americans? I think they're trying to take down democracy. I think that's the end game. I think that's the game that the billionaires are playing, these right-wing billionaires. I think it's the game that the foreign oligarchs, whether it's the Russians or the Saudis or whatever it may be, who are interfering in our elections and who are spreading disinformation in social media in the United States, I think the end game of all of these people is end democracy so that it can be my country, right? So that they can take over. This is a very, very wealthy country in a whole variety of ways. And whoever ends up owning or controlling this country has access to mind-boggling wealth and power. It seems to me that that's really what's going on here. I, I trust that you don't have faith that they're going to succeed at that. I think, you know, if Trump had been able to get a couple of Republican states, uh, secretaries of state to flip, we would be there right now. It would be the end of democracy. So I, I still think that we're just a slice away from it. And I'm very concerned about that. Kirk, thank you for the call. I, you know, I probably should have included that in the op-ed, you know, how, how close we came and still are, frankly. Kevin in Lower Maryland. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? I just want to speak to the Windsor police officer that pulled over the second lieutenant in army. And I'm going to just give you this example. I am from rural Virginia, okay? And Windsor is rural Virginia. In Virginia, what we do is when the police try to pull us over, because there's no street lights in Windsor, there's literally dark. So we pulled into mm -hmm. gas stations or a convenience store, so it can be very well lit. I'm going to tell you something, right. Tom. I was a Federal Express driver with full uniform, you Federal Express vehicle. I went, I was working in Windsor. I went to this restaurant to go use the bathroom because I'm in my uniform, you know, I delivered to them before. I went in there to deliver, to, to use the bathroom, walked out back to my truck in my Federal Express uniform, to my Federal Express truck. The lady came out there and told me, she said, don't you ever come in here and use the bathroom again. This is Windsor, Virginia. They are racist police officers there. They're racist people. That, that is Trump country. I'm not saying all people in, in, oh, yeah. in rural Virginia is racist. I'm just saying Windsor, Virginia, when we're there, when we're traveling through, we're nervous. We don't take no chances if they tell us to pull over. We try to go to a well-lit place. Now, what if that yeah. second lieutenant wouldn't have went to that well-lit place that he went to? That's what we do, Tom, because we're scared. Mm -hmm. We're literally scared yeah. for our I lives. totally get it. I totally get it. Makes perfect sense. And I know that, uh, you know, Louise has told me that she would do the same thing as a woman, that, you know, women are also afraid in many cases about the of these male cops, because very often, they're, you know, they will they will basically rape women if they arrest them, you know, in a place where they think they can get away with it, particularly in places like the South. Kevin, thank you. Thanks for the story. That's that's, you know, a personal touch there. You know, Virginia is where the slave patrols were first ratified as institutions. It's still going on. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. The good news, I suppose, is that Virginia now has a reasonable Democratic governor who has come out and condemned this. I think something's going to get done. Johan in uh, Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's up? I have a question about Second Amendment, since you wrote the book about mm -hmm. it. Yeah. 
Remember Judge Berger, 1991, that he said uh, the greatest piece of the Second Amendment? He will not write the Second Amendment again if he writes the Constitution. Do you defend the Second Amendment? You know, I don't think that there's any need for a Second Amendment if we were going to rewrite the Constitution. The, the two reasons that the Second Amendment was passed, when it was passed, the way it was passed, using the language that it had when it was passed in 17, I think it was probably 91 or maybe even 93 by the time the, all the amendments were ratified. But the reason why that happened the way it did at the time was there were these two debates going on. The first was whether or not there should be an army, a permanent standing army in the United States. And there were a number of the founders who were flipped out about the possibility that the same thing that had happened in Europe over and over and over again, which is that the army overthrows the civilian government, could happen. And that debate ended with the War of 1812. By 1815, nobody was even talking about that. And that was probably 90% of why the Second Amendment was written. The other 10% of why the Second Amendment was written, the way it was when it was, was to preserve the legitimacy, the legality, and the uh, armed nature of the slave patrols in the South. Don't take it from me, take it from Patrick Henry, the largest slave owner in Virginia, came right out and said it. And among others. Yeah, he said it. Yeah, and I, he said, Great, yeah, and I wrote about this in my book. Dad every man be armed because the slave patrols had to be armed and then they changed the word country you know for the security of it says for the security of a free state the original language was for the security of a free nation or a free country i think it was country at the time and they changed that to state because Virginia said, hey, wait a minute, if this is for a free country, that means that you, you know, if we get a, an Abraham Lincoln in the White House, he didn't know Lincoln, obviously, at the time, but, but, you know, he said, if you get a guy in the White House who is opposed to slavery, then he could just call up the Virginia militia and send them off to Nevada or something, you know, New Hampshire, and suddenly... You know, we have no more slave patrol. And so, you know, it's got to be that we have sovereignty over our own militias. And that's why they changed, that's why James Madison changed the language after he called Patrick Henry paranoid. He changed the language yeah. of the Second Amendment to for the security of a free state. But the Second Amendment was never about personal protection, ever. There was no discussion mm -hmm. of that at the time. It was about repelling foreign invasion. It was never about what happens if the U.S. government becomes tyrannical, which is the way that it has been completely reinvented by these crazed right-wingers like, I mean, Marjorie yeah, Taylor Greene is trying to sell this. Yeah. Lauren Boebert is trying to sell this. Yeah, oh, you know, the Second Amendment was written because they wanted, the politicians who started this country wanted average people to have guns to shoot at politicians. I don't think so. So, no, Johan, thank you very much for the call. Yeah, spot on. This whole Second Amendment thing is just a massive scam. Priscilla in Jackson, Mississippi. Hey, Priscilla, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? just wanted to talk about, you were talking about lynching, the lynching of George Floyd, because that's what it was. I am a close mm -hmm. relative of Emmett Till, and my family never received justice for Emmett's murder, and it's been 65 years. And today, we still have lynching, and you know, lynching is the ultimate expression of racism. So, I don't know if you all paid attention last night to the people versus the Klan. Well, that's mm -hmm. exactly what we are having today. We are still trying to get justice for Emmett's murder 65 years later from Carolyn Bryant. And we still have not heard from the DA here in the state of Mississippi for even bringing her to trial. So if Carolyn Bryant had been prosecuted back in 1955, you wouldn't have all these cops this is the white woman who claimed that he had whistled at her, who later recanted and said she made it up. Yeah, I thought she passed away. She's still around, huh? No, sir. And we are doing research right now and found out that her husband was part of the White Citizens Council here in Mississippi yep. during that time. So the Ku Klux Klan is very much a part of what happens to Emmett. And we know for a fact that there's a conspiracy around Emmett Till's murder. Her husband, J.W. Bryant and Roy Milam, they are both dead now. But we yeah, just but want they were the guys the who killed Emmett Till. Yes, sir. They were the two men that killed Emmett Till, and they were just the two that were brought to trial. But there is a whole conspiracy. Right. Hardy lied along with others that were involved with Emmett Till's murder and how J. Edgar Hoover slandered Mamie Till to say she was a communist for wanting her son's death brought to the light wanted justice served for Emmett, and she was called a i mean literally 
called a communist. So I think we have something wrong in this and right here in the United States today. And we know for a fact that lynching is a widely practiced, widely practiced in all but four states in America. So we have a problem yeah. here in the United States. Yeah. And what are I'm, we going to do about you. it? What are we going to do? What is our Justice Department going to do about it right now? Yeah, we got to A, wake the hell up, and B, start pushing these legal actions and what you're doing too, Priscilla. Priscilla, thank you very much for sharing your story with us. It's great to hear from you. David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, David, what's on your mind? The coverage of the proposed voter suppression laws. Mm-hmm. In the news this morning, I heard that, oh, they're proposing voter suppression laws in 47 states. Well, I feel like the reporting is inaccurate and it's misleading because Republicans are not in control of 47 or 43 states, and they're not in control, you know, whether you consider the legislature or the the governor. States that are democratically controlled are not going to pass that kind of legislation, but But that legislation is still being introduced by Republicans. That's my point. When they report it in the news, they're not clarifying that. They're making it seem like, oh, they're proposing them in 43 states, so it's a done deal like they did in Georgia, and that's not the case. What they should be saying is Republicans, basically all 50 states, are trying to propose these laws, but it's not going to happen in all 50 states because they're leaving people with the impression that, oh, it's going to be law in 47 states, and that's just not even possible. And in fact, some Republicans are going to try and turn this into basically what they call a test vote. Prove you're with us or against us kind of thing. Daryl in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Hey, Daryl, what's on your mind today? White farmers trying to get a fair shake. And you know what? It referenced me to some of the research that I've done regarding my family. And the Colored Farmers Alliance comes into mind. And the White Mm -hmm. Farmers Alliance. They try to merge to get a fair shake from uh, plantations during Reconstruction. And mm-hmm. what happened was the powers that be, some planters decided they didn't want that type of organizing because it threatened them. And so, therefore, the uh, Greenwood County in Mississippi, it was a massacre. 200 blacks were murdered. The National Guard was called in. Children were murdered. And so they never tried to attempt to organize again. And so in the same area, you know, I heard one of your callers talk about Hardy Lott. My research brought me to him. He started the Citizens <laughs> Council a year before Emmett was murdered in 1954, okay? Mm-hmm. And he also represented the murderer of Mega Ebers, okay? This is the same Hardy Lott that passed away in 1996, and he clerked for the Mississippi Senator Wicker, Roger Wicker. And so what I'm trying to say is that you have these political operatives, Tom, that have infiltrated our government to create division and hate to keep us divided. And they seem to have some kind of pride of being associated with wealthy planters, i.e. Mitch McConnell. If we investigate a person like Hardy Lott, we could trace his ties to who he represented. And we can get yeah. some justice. For, and you know who would know? Carolyn Bryant would know all about Hardy Lott. Because they, right, cause he they, defended uh, her husband, right? Grew up, that's right, Tom. He counseled Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. Hardy Lott did. He counseled them. And how do you wind up as the scheduler for Roger Wicker? And so what it is, they have this, this fantasy about the Civil War that they cannot let go. And we should force them to let go of that treasonous or hold, or be held accountable for that treasonous well, we, huh? we need to be teaching actual history. I, you know, I've told the story before on this program how when after Louise and I moved down to Atlanta, you know, our son came home from second, third grade, fourth grade, whatever he was, you know, early elementary school. And I said, you know, what did you learn in school today? And he said, oh, we learned about the, the war of northern aggression. What? (laughs) These white people who run around with Confederate flags have this weird fantasy that somehow whiteness protected poor people in the South and, you know, be pre-Civil War. And it didn't. They certainly didn't have it as bad as black people, but they had it far worse than anywhere else in the country and in most other places in the world, you know, and literally were bought and sold on occasion if they if they got out of line and were lynched. The fact that white Americans don't know their own damn history is frustrating, as well as the fact that they don't know.
of black history. We have been sold a Disney by the Trump people and the, all of these you know, groups with their funny names like the Boogaloo Boys were being sold this Disney-fied version of the Confederacy, of the Old South. And it's not a new thing. I mean, Gone with the Wind was a Disney-eyed version of it. Daryl, I got to move along. Thank you for the call. And, th- and perfect point. Steve in Chicago. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? We're in this sort of vicious cycle. Going back to the young man, the officer, uh, in, in terms of what happened with regard to that police interaction, so you have a, an American society, especially African Americans, who are rightfully fearful of the police, police encounters. And they'll, they'll take steps. You see those lights in your rearview mirror? You're going to naturally have an impulse to find someplace public, someplace where other people might be mm-hmm. able to witness this interaction. Now, the, the way that police officers are trained are to establish authority and to control the situation. Now, they can interpret that as attempt to flee. Steve, he drove less than one minute. It's on the the dash cam footage. It was less than one minute to get to a gas station. I agree. Exactly. I absolutely agree with you. And and unfortunately, this is the vicious cycle because then uh, police are interpreting this as somehow challenging their authority. And, of course, that creates a situation in which somebody else can die, which, of course, is, again, goes to my point. It's a vicious circle where now more people are afraid and will take steps to do the same sort of thing because they're fearful for their life. And so where does the cycle end? And that's the issue. Yeah, I think the cycle ends when we change the way that we do policing in the United States. We have punitive policing and punitive imprisonment. And what we really need is community service policing, and and uh, restorative justice, you know, imprisonment that is designed to return people to society. There's a great movie that Michael Moore made. I think it's the last movie that he's made. It's called Where to Invade Next. And it's got to be available, you know, at the very least on Amazon Prime, but probably other places as well. And he, he talks about how, you know, he, he goes to a prison in Norway. And it will just, it, your jaw will drop when you see this thing, Steve. Oh, no, I, and, 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 and Louise, I'm very familiar with the movie. And I'm very familiar. Yeah, okay, great. Well, it's, you know, it's a good one. And, and, and you know, and Louise and I had uh, two encounters with the police the year that we lived in Germany. And they were professional, they were respectful, they were thoughtful, they were, you know, it, 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 now I realize there's bad cops in Germany as well, but nothing like we've got here. Nothing like we've got here. We're unique in the world because so much of our policing came out of our slave patrols. Tom Harbin here with you. My hypothesis that not only has America in many ways always been an ethno-nationalist police state, the South was fully that. This whole, uh, you know, from the Boogaloo Boys to the Proud Boys to the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, they're, they're basically trying to bring that back and they have no idea what they're talking about, of the fire that they're playing with. And in the meantime, people are being killed by police and and others. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? In regards to the way police are behaving in some cities, why someone doesn't say, okay, you're going to have a personal insurance policy on you as an officer, and the department is going to have a policy on our department. And when you cannot treat the public properly, your insurance rates are going to go up. And when it continues to happen, the entire group will see their rates go up, and we will encourage people to behave properly based on money, because money is what they'll listen to. So basically, the same way that doctors and nurses have to have malpractice right. insurance, cops should have to have malpractice insurance. Yeah, I, I'm with you, Sandra. You have someone driving down the street with, oh, they've got a, an air freshener on their rearview mirror. How dare they? Right. Well. They might pull up and say, sir, this city doesn't allow that. Please remove it from your windshield or your visor or whatever, windshield, uh, rearview yeah. mirror. And that would be that. Rather than pepper spraying him, shooting him, a variety of other options that seem to happen far too often. One of the you know, major factors that polices the behavior of doctors and nurses and people in the field, you know, basically, is the fact that they know that their insurance company can drop their insurance or radically raise their prices if they misbehave. I'm totally with you. Thank you very much for the call, Sandra. Sean in Millsburg, Ohio. Hey, Sean, what's up? I've often said that the FBI should do 
random uh, and detailed checks on local police departments and those that are mm-hmm. employed by the police because they hold so much power. They hold a tremendous amount of power to ruin the lives of people they come in contact with that their social media accounts should be looked at on a regular basis just to see if they may have any ties to white supremacists or any type of white nationalist group. You know, insurance companies, car insurance companies right now are looking at people's social media to determine if they're safe, reliable, if they drink too much, basically. They are looking at the information that your car sends your car manufacturer. If you have a smart car, you know, if your car has a, a, a map system in it or any of that kind of thing. Somebody called earlier, actually several people have called over the last little while, the last few weeks, and, and talked about we should have liability insurance for cops just like doctors and nurses have. Once the insurance industry gets in on something, here, here's another one of these so-called free market solutions, they're going to start paying attention to this in, the way that, in ways that the FBI isn't. That said, I would love to see some undercover FBI agents driving a, you know, an old beater car, black FBI agents in a largely black neighborhood, basically just driving around waiting for the police to pull them over. <laughs> well, I'll just leave it at that. I, you know, I'm with you. Sean, thank you for the call. The second topic I wanted to raise is how can a police officer mistake a gun for a taser? Which is the question, the, the, you know, at the top of the New York Times, actually, which is, you know, a reasonable question. I mean, how, how is that possible? A taser weighs one third of what a gun does. One third. A taser has a very large grip. A, a police firearm has a much smaller grip. A taser has a flip lever safety on the side. The kind of glocks that they use in, in this town of Minnesota, a safety as part of a trigger. You could feel all these things. They're different. The grips are different. The taser is bright yellow. I mean, how is it possible? I don't frankly think it is possible. Now, this is the eighth or ninth time a person has been killed in America by police who insisted that they were just pulling their taser, this time by Officer Kimberly Potter who killed Mr. Wright, who, by the way, is the head of the police union and has 26 years on the force. And in fact, in the past, has helped defend cops who killed unarmed black men. You know, as the head of the union. The police manual, by the way, that, you know, she's supposed to know, says that uh, tasers should not be used against people, quote, whose position or activity may result in collateral injury, especially people who are, quote, operating vehicles. So here's Dante Wright back in his car. She shoots him. The car drives off. I mean, that's the whole point of not using a taser on somebody who's sitting behind the wheel of a vehicle. You know, three blocks later, it crashes and he's dead. But it's like, really? You know, one of the most widely known cases happened in Oakland back in 2009. White Bay Area Transit Officer Bart Cop shot and killed an unarmed black man on New Year's Day at the uh, Fruitville Station. And this was Oscar Grant. You may recognize the name, Oscar Grant III. He was laying face down when the officer shot him. And he later said, oh, I meant to pull my taser. And he ended up 11 months in prison. I agree with the sentiment that Dante Wright is, or Dante Wright is the new Oscar Grant. And I'm just not buying it that this woman believed that she had a taser in her hand. Not 26 years on the force, not the head of the police union. Not somebody who has defended cops in this situation before. I'm just not buying it. Which raises the question, why would she yell taser, 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 unless she was performing for the body camera? You know, I get it. Then there's that kind of shocked moment of, oh my blank, I shot him. The mainstream media is going out of their way to say, you know, well, we have to give the officer the benefit of the doubt. B.S. Somebody's dead. Why is there not liability for these things? Why are we still policing like it's the slave patrol days? Is it possible that an officer can mistake a gun for a taser? Like I said, we now have, this is the eighth or ninth case that New York Times is able to find. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? Frank in Chicago. Hey, Frank. My argument, Tom, is that if one is fearful for her or his life, uh, she or he can make a stupid mistake because I have made mistakes in my life. I'm not a police officer. I knew a police officer here in Chicago at the uh, Robert Taylor Holmes housing project. And uh, she informed me that some nights she would go to work and she would be so scared 
that she would soil her pants. Uh, then she shouldn't be there. And by the way, the taser was on her left hip and the, and the gun was on her right hip. And she had the gun in her right hand. I mean, th- this is all, or, or actually, we don't know for sure that it was on her left hip. The other officers that we could see from her body cameras, they had it on their left hips. She should have had it on her left hip. That's, that's the protocol. So, you know, I get it, Frank, that people make mistakes when they're frightened. I, I totally get it. I totally agree. I totally understand. I'm just not buying it that that's what happened here. Uh, you know, maybe somebody can convince me. But Frank, thank you for the call. I, you know, this seems to me like an execution. Although, you know, what's the what's the motive for the execution other than that he's black? Is that enough? Listening to the Tom Hartman program. I mean, apparently it is for some cops, although typically there's at least some small provocation. Well, maybe jumping back in the car is the provocation. Anyway. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Andy in Hoosick Falls, New York. Hey, Andy, what's up? calling about the this latest police incident you know uh, i drive a train for a living and i've been doing it for 15 years mm-hmm. and we fall under the guidelines and it, for me it's passenger rail right so we we've, we're uh, connected to the people so you're an amtrak engineer. and uh yeah mm-hmm. so what happens is is that when we're trained we're trained on the rules but then we have these performance guidelines which are set up by nasa they're called um uh situational awareness and technical proficiency and they fall under the guidelines of what they call crew resource management nasa came up with this we adopted it and basically my technical proficiencies are knowing the rules knowing my equipment uh knowing my physical characteristics of my territory and crew and and then within crew resource management you have situational awareness it's foggy out things like that where the situations change and they did this because of accidents, mm-hmm. because of what I saw, like, on television, right, with the police. For a police officer not to know the difference between a gun and a taser would be like me not knowing the difference between the throttle and the brake. It seems almost impossible that you could use that as an excuse. Instead of braking, I throttle and crash. Seems impossible. Her technical proficiency is completely lost in this situation. And the situational awareness is like a domino effect. You don't just get to a situation like what happened. It usually is a compounding effect of situations where if you are aware of your situation, your situational awareness, you can de-escalate before it gets to that level. So that would be like me not being aware of, say, icy conditions and then continuing to just not pay attention to my, my surroundings. So she, she lost her situational awareness and her technical proficiency. And for somebody who's that many years in service, a representative of the union, seems impossible. You know, and there were two other cops standing right with her as she's yelling taser, and they can both think, see that she's holding a gun. Why doesn't one of them, like, knock the gun out of the way or say, no, that's your gun? Or... <sighs> I, that know, falls under yeah, the crew I, I, resource I, I, management. I work with the crew myself, and we all mm-hmm. we're all held equally responsible. So that if something is going wrong, somebody is trained to step in. That's part of crew resource management. I'm sure the police department is aware of these things. It comes out of NASA, and a lot of these agencies pick this stuff up. Right, and this guy had a misdemeanor charge, which he failed to show up in court for, so they issued a warrant to bring him back to court. And this is not John Dillinger. This is not a guy that you use a taser on to begin with. Exactly. The situation, the situation they should have been aware of that situation, so that it didn't domino into this. Yeah. That falls yeah, within with the you. situational awareness guidelines. I'm with you. Joyce in, uh, how do you say that town? Cape Coral. Oh, Cape <laughs> Coral, two words. So what's up, Joyce? Well, I'm 
actually a retired police officer, so I have a little bit of an insight as guns and tasers, and uh, I'm as much of a lost as you are as far as the last caller was totally correct about situational awareness. You have to know what's going on at all times. As far as the taser versus a gun, you carry it completely differently than you carry your gun, specifically to avoid that situation. You have muscle memory where you constantly grab your sidearm. You mm-hmm. practice quick draw so you know exactly where your weapon is at all times, and you specifically carry your taser at a awkward or different angle to avoid that situation. Yeah. So how she managed to do that is absolutely beyond me. She was not involved in the original altercation. She came from the back forward. So you would think that situational awareness would be better for her than it would be for the two. Yeah. Right. Then it would be better for the two officers who are mixing it up with with, uh, Dante Wright. Yeah. She can observe, make, make an assessment, and then engage. It seems like such a stretch to say, oh, yeah, this cop just wanted to execute a, a, you know, a black kid because she's throwing away her career. She's throwing away her life by doing that. And she has to know that, especially while the Floyd trial is going on. That's the one thing that gives me pause in outright accusing her of trying to do an execution. But I, you know, what else? I, I, well, what I, are I, the other I get it. I think part of what will help is mandatory psychological evaluations as your career mm-hmm progresses. We all have them when we get hired. We need them throughout our career because the job will change you as a person. And we need to have those psychological evaluations to find out if you are, as one of your callers mentioned, the female officer that used to soil herself before she got on duty. Go be a librarian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That person should not be a police officer. But then also, we we shouldn't be policing. Psychological evaluations might catch those Maybe good cops that are, I don't know, going down a bad road forever, stop, save them. Or weed out the ones that have no business being there in the first place. One psychological evaluation at the beginning of your career is not going to cover you for the next 20. No, and, and, and let's start changing the way that we do policing so that it's not... It's not such a grind. It's not such a terrible job. You know, there there are police are called on to do so many different things that they really shouldn't be doing, and and the and as a result, they find themselves in situations that really don't require. And and I'm not talking about this situation specifically, but but you know, just as a as a grind you down kind of job, um, situations that don't require guns and police force. Lucretia in Los Angeles. Hey, Lucretia, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? I find it glaring that a lot of the focus now, as far as with the recent shooting in Minnesota, is focused on whether um, the female cop made a mistake of pulling a taser. But really, the question is, what was he doing being pulled over in the first place? None of this would be happening if he wasn't being harassed over a pine tree hanging from his rear view. Yeah, which which I, I had no idea was illegal in Minneapolis, but apparent, or in uh, Minnesota, but apparently it is, uh, technically anyway. Anything that obstructs your vision of your, of your, you know, is... But really? I mean, they still sell these things in auto parts stores. In car washes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. but so, yeah, that's, that's my, my simple note. I'm completely with you, Lucretia, and that needs to be brought up more frequently, too. Thank you. And which gets back to my point about the kind of policing that we're doing. Wayne in Eugene, Oregon. Hey, Wayne, what's on your mind? Well, a couple of years ago, Tom, I did a little informal research on these cop killings. And what I tried to check on was whether returning combat vets with PTSD were part of the problem. And what I found Mm -hmm. out was that... As as in returning combat vets becoming cops or returning combat vets triggering cops? No, becoming cops. Okay, And what I found out was that wasn't a factor the returning vets, but PTSD is rampant in all police. And that makes sense. Uh, I was a paramedic in ER and ICU tech for many years. And the constant alertness, you're on constant fight or flight, basically, 
chemicals because you're constantly alert for something bad to happen. And it takes its toll and it causes PTSD. And when you see a, you know, a trained uh, veteran cop shoot somebody because he's scared to death of him and afraid for his life and the person is unarmed and running away from him, something's wrong there. And that strikes me as PTSD, really. Could be. And, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense. And that's why we need to be changing the nature of policing. As I've said before, there are a lot of things that cops do that shouldn't be done by cops. And the things that cops do do, there should be greater oversight. There should be greater liability and responsibility, accountability. There should be financial, legal, political, you know, the whole spectrum. And we need to stop having policing be a partisan issue. We've got the Republican Party that's like totally down with killer cops and the Democratic Party saying, hey, wait a minute. And that's crazy. I mean, you know, of course, the Republican Party doesn't stand for anything that is all American. They're, they're just all about brutality and fascism. But it's still, it's still freaking crazy. Thanks so much for being with us today and uh, throughout the week. Thanks to Louise, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Hoyt, Geraldine Albert, Dave Fulton, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Strauss, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, and Jabbermocky, all the folks working on this show. Thank you, and thank you for being with us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 